Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a political reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me as always, Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon. Let's get right down to it. It <laughs> seems that the mayoral race is heating up. Oh, uh, it's so hot. It's so hot. The issues are are critical to Very life substantive. or death. Very substantive. Right, well, Joe? Well, Jason's being a little sarcastic here. But... Heating, heating up to uh, compared to weeks past, well, yes. at least. What's what's interesting is that here it is, um, less than two months before the primary, and the candidates mm-hmm. are basically sparring. Now, this is traditional over when and where to debate. Um, Reed's claiming that the joint appearances that they've scheduled so far together, the mayor's office notes there's about a dozen. Um, they're saying that they're too small of venues, that they need something bigger. I think they're implying they're hoping some sort of TV or radio thing. Right. And uh, so they want something bigger, better. And that's traditional to be fighting about that. But they're also fighting over uh, Reed's wife, who's a judge, who stepped down as a judge. And her his campaign saying she did so because uh, the slave administration cut her hours back. And they think it's linked to the campaign. that, And the mayor's campaign says that's ridiculous. Uh, they've been sparring over... Uh, various endorsements. The big thing is that the mayor got the St. Louis Labor Council this week. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is incongruous with the endorsements that Reed has gotten from the firefighters unions. Correct. Now, the firefighters are right. Right now, they're the only major union that is endorsing Reed. And of course, this is in connection with the mayor and the firefighters been at odds for a couple of years now over their pension plan and trying to change their pension plan. And that seems to be one of the main issues where the two diverge on things. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And I think, yes. But also, like, the Reed has been claiming that the, that, that the mayor isn't focusing enough on crime fighting in the city. And the mayor he, says, yes, we are. He released an ad about it, in fact. Yeah. And, and, the, and the mayor says, yes, we are. And But the stuff that they're doing ad-wise is really just online right now. Neither yes, side is on TV. Yeah. It's just videos. I th- I refer to them as test ads. Yeah. They want to see what what plays well the right online. The, 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 yeah, the thing hasn't. The thing that struck me most about the the slay ad, and this might be myopic of me because I regularly go to <laughs> county council meeting, but Charlie Dooley, the St. Louis County Executive, was very prominent in that ad. And I think yes. I asked this in a previous podcast. Like, how does that benefit Slay to have the leader of a, an entity that's not ruling over the city in his ad. I mean, if you took it in reverse, if Slay appeared in ads for, for Dooley in 2014 when possibly he's getting primary, I mean, is that really going to help Dooley at all? Well, like, they think it helps with swing voters. Uh, and this this goes back 20 years. Yeah. Mayors often try to feature the St. Louis County executive in their ads or whatever to show that they have a regional focus, that they're a power player, mm-hmm. and that they <laughs> – king on Jason's recent series uh, – and that they have some influence. Right. So that's one of the things they do. Now, there's also a side benefit in the case of Dooley, which I'm sure the mayor's campaign will deny, but there is the visual. Dooley is um, – the region's top elected African-American outside of uh, Congressman Lacey Clay, who's in Washington. So having Dooley in the ad also um, is a subliminal effect. I mean, 
effort by the mayor's campaign, in my opinion, to show African-American voters that the mayor is on good terms with the establishment in the African-American elected officials. And the same way with him having the endorsement of Jamila Nasheed, the new state senator. And that's the type of thing that Slay needs to have. And Lacey Clay. Yeah, and Lacey Clay. He needs to have that message out because, of course, he's been at odds with various officials in the past over such things as um, the ouster of then the first African-American police chief, I mean, uh, fire chief a few years ago, different things like that. But I think there's been a question brought up, especially by people who are, are allied to Reed, that having do, do, do having these endorsements, are they really going to help slay in in some of the north side wards or some of the south side wards, which are majority African-American? Like, just because Jamila Nasheed endorses Slay, does that mean he's going to get more votes because of that? Well, I think what they're hoping is to at least— uh, Good question, but to at least cut down on the margin. Yeah, and that's by no means denigrating Jamila Nasheed. I know she has a really solid reputation of being a fierce and at times effective campaigner, but, I mean, how is that going to translate into helping? Maybe it translates by the fact that since they're not supporting Reed, he's not getting that organizational help or something like that. Exactly. In fact, you just brought up, the biggest thing. If if Lacey Clay is has endorsed the mayor, that means that Lacey Clay's operation, which turned out to be fairly formidable in August, mm-hmm. will not be working for Lewis Reed. Yeah. Won't be doing any get on the boat. Well it it's hard to talk about this race without talking about fundraising. Slay released his campaign finance reports, which are optional this week, mandatory next week. Yes. He has one and a half million in cash on hand, which is the same uh, roughly the same that he had in cash on hand in the last campaign filings. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he his largest donor was Missourians for Excellence in Government, which is a Rex Singfield organized pack. Yeah, and interestingly, both candidates have gotten big donations from Rex Singfield in the past. Though Slay has gotten more than than mm-hmm. Reed. But Slay's biggest donor overall, if you don't include just this report, but look at all the major donations he's gotten since the beginning of 2012, his biggest donor is Sam Fox. Yeah. He's given him $45,000. It's in smaller donations, but it totals that. Yeah, it, it totals 45000 The uh, Rex Singfield money is actually $50,000, right. though. Yeah, that, that's true. That's yes. true. Um, and then um, Reed's money, his largest donor comes from a couple different uh, firefighters' unions, but it's about, I think it's about $40,000 right now. Yeah, now Reed has not put out his report this week. We don't know if he will. Right. Again, it's optional, but his last report that he did release, which was a, um, almost a month ago, it had a, he only had about ten percent of what the mayor had yeah. in the bank. Yeah, and I think the Major. and I think what Reed has been saying is, I mean, for him, he has to hope that it's a repeat of what happened in the summer of 2012, where a lot of candidates who were outspent by people like Tashara Jones, for example, or Michael Butler in in a state house race, they were able to win because of high African American turnout or just high supporters of Lacey Clay, because there's obviously people who probably voted for Lacey Clay who are of all nationalities because he won by such a large margin. But I mean, they, he has to hope that something like that happens, you know, to go over this financial uh, deficit that even I think he admits is he's just not going to be able to bridge the gap with Slay. I mean, I I think at this early in the game, unless 
somebody gives him a million or two million dollar donation, it's just not going to happen at this point. Would you kind of say that? No, I would agree with you. And I think there's the other issue is that in a March 5th primary, your turnout is going to be low. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So unless either one or both of them can generate enough excitement to get beyond their core supporters, then it becomes who is most successful at getting his core supporters out. If it means that a lot of the fringe people don't bother to go to the polls. I mean, there have been at times over the last 20, 30, 40 years when the city's March primary has had a large turnout. I'm not sure that this is shaping up to be one of them. It's early, but I'm not sure if it's generating the type of controversy than, say, 1997 when then-Mayor Clarence Harmon was— uh, you know, battling with uh, Freeman Fre- Bosley. Freeman, Freeman, well, actually, 97, Freeman Bosley was mayor and Clarence Harmon ousted him, but it was a very intense Democratic primary. Yeah. Or in 2001 when it was Bosley, Harmon, and Slay. Yeah. So far, it hasn't solicited that much excitement. But you know what is getting a lot of excitement? What? The inauguration, Jason. You were there for it. No, I actually, I wasn't. I oh. was I was actually very warm inside my house watching people tweet about it. Joe, she was, I was the one. There. The old lady was there with my earmuffs. Was it, my was it exciting? Well, it was like 20 degrees out, and uh, I've been at colder ones, but it was extremely, and a lot of people's computers were freezing because we were outside a little table. Oh, really? Yes, it was, it was uh, very cold. And uh, but uh, Jay Nixon, the governor, promised that he would give a short speech. He was it was still about 20 minutes. I'm not sure if it was that much shorter than most speeches, but he generally focused on broad themes, not um, individual issues, basically talked about the need to come together, work across the aisle, the stuff he's been saying for the last four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the intriguing parts was he was talking about how progress isn't partisan and all this. And then immediately. Within minutes after his speech was over, uh, Republican leaders in the state house and Senate were putting out statements, and basically they were saying that his, as far as they were concerned, they didn't buy any of his speech. They thought, I mean, we had one state senator refer to it on Twitter as a as a know nothing speech from Our, a do nothing. It was governor. John Lamping said, who I believe listens to this podcast. It was a do nothing speech from, from a do nothing governor. Yes. And if I'm wrong, John Lamping, please hit me up on Twitter and, and make sure you correct me. <laughs> and, and Tim Jones, uh, the speaker, was saying that he liked the words, but he hadn't seen much evidence of performance. The reaction was interesting because I cannot recall that swift of responses in the negative so soon after a gubernatorial speech. Now, some of it's the nature of social media and the way yeah. things get get, a, get around now. But it also highlights the divisions, the partisanship that's going on in the state capitol, just as it is in Washington, and which can make it difficult to reach compromise on certain issues, such as the Medicaid expansion, which the governor and many groups in the Hospital Association and others are pressing, and which the Republican leaders, as we've said numerous times here, um, are not inclined to even discuss. Yeah, and I seem to recall in 2009, I mean, that was the time when Ron Richard and Charlie Shields were in charge of the the House and the Senate, respectively. Right. And I, I do recall that both of them had a relatively good relationship with the governor. I, I don't know what the relationship is like between House Speaker Tim Jones and uh, Senate President Pro Tem Tom Dempsey and Nixon. I think that uh, that'll probably 
you know, play itself out over the next couple of years. And in Dempsey's case, maybe over the next four years. So Now, Dempsey did perform the ceremonial role of being the MC at the inauguration, and everything seemed to be pretty amiable on the stage. The one funny thing was <laughs> they have to wait. I mean, okay, the, according to the Constitution, the governor is to be sworn in at noon. So everybody else is sworn in before, and then the governor is sworn in at noon and then gives his, his or her speech. Well, they all wait for the bell from the uh, Catholic Church that's just across the street. Well, so they're waiting for the bells to chime. And so the bells, ceremonial bells are chiming. Everybody's really quiet. And people didn't notice for a second that only eight bells had been risen. There was this long pause of maybe a minute. And then somebody started chuckling. And then all of a sudden... I think some people thought, oh, we'd miscounted. So then the governor was getting ready to actually launch into his address. And then all of a sudden it started ringing again. <laughs> and everyone sort of chuckled. And then they did do the swearing in and he uh, proceeded. But it was just one of those human moments that one of the refreshing things about the inauguration in Missouri, in Missouri is that it's open to the public. Yes. It's out there no matter how cold or rainy or whatever it is. Anybody can come. You may have to stand but you can be there. And then there's the parade beforehand. And because it was so cold, there weren't that many people on the parade route. Uh, I saw pictures. It was. It seemed to be a lot of legislators and well, Nixon just in just the back Just remember, of in 2009, trucks. it was inaugurating a lot of new people. In fact, I and think, there was a pretty good crowd then. Yeah, along those and streets. I believe like Kinder was the only. Was he the only returning statewide office holder that year? Oh, in 2009. Like, yes. Oh, and, and Rob, Robin Carnahan right, as well. Right, correct. So I think that was probably why there was more interest in that because it was a new governor, there was a new attorney general, a new treasurer. I mean, this time around, the only new person is Jason Kinder and. While he did make the bold step of changing the the website, not only with his picture, but also the the color tone from yellow to blue. He did other things, too. He had a day one announcement about not taking lobbyist gifts for his staff and working on things for early voting. And And he had really nice little miniature uh, cupcakes on trays outside his office. I don't know how I feel about this new Secretary of State When when I saw Robin Carnahan in this studio, I I did remark to her that it was very jarring to go to that website and not see her face because ever since I started – becoming reporting on Missouri politics. We all go to that site every every you know yeah. every, every 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 day and just to see somebody else's picture on oh, it is kind of weird. It's <laughs> it's it's not like she was FDR. <laughs> Who was it's, it's less of her and more of just the color scheme. The blue yeah. it's jarring. I mean, I've only been, you know, following Missouri politics, you know, since well well, you wouldn't know it because you have a wealth of knowledge that belies uh, your youth. Back then, I was all about <laughs> Illinois politics when Republicans <laughs> still controlled the governorship there. So that's real ancient history. And and, and the, the governor had a meeting like right after the inaugural, which also surprised me, with teachers and other groups to highlight his uh, mm-hmm. focus on education. And uh, so that was – it was – but it is so different from what you see in Washington, where it's all the security. I mean, there's plenty of security in Jeff City, but right. it's just more open. It has a small town feel to it. It is a small town. It's it's, it's very quaint. Yeah, and the same way with the ball, where you yeah. know people can show up and watch from the balcony and try doing that in D.C. It won't happen, <laughs> trust me. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's going on inside of the Capitol building. Uh, it seems like there's been a little bit of progress on a bill that would change— the way that the lieutenant governor would 
not would just be Lieutenant seceded. Governor, no, well, and all yeah. statewide offices. This is another Republican attempt to. I will say though, the governor's power. There have been and, different types of of these bills put forward by uh, House Speaker Pro Tem Jason Smith of Salem, who ironically is running for the eighth district mm-hmm. race. And this is congressional being, race, right? Yeah, and this is being done because there's fear that. Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder is going to get the nomination, and there's a vacancy. You can go back on our podcast. We've talked about it for hours yes. at this point. And the thing that kind of struck me about it was this bill actually wouldn't be that detrimental to Democrats if it ended up passing, because under this bill, Governor Nixon would be able to appoint a placeholder that would serve out the like one or two years of the term. The, the caveat is that person could not run in the subsequent special election. So that would mean there would have been no Becky Cook, who would have won immediately after she was appointed, or Margaret Kelly immediately right. after she was appointed. That would be the main consequence. But under that scenario, if Kinder ended up getting the nom- nomination in one Congress, Nixon would get to appoint a Democrat, almost certainly. Now, th- that might change in who he actually picks. We talked about on the show, for example, that maybe he would pick someone like Coster or Zweifel to position them for the next election. Well, in this case, that might not be the best option because then that person would be frozen from running for that special election. So maybe he would pick somebody from his staff, like former House Minority Leader Jeff Harris of Columbia. Maybe he would pick a state senator from the Democratic Party, like maybe Joey Justice of Kansas City or a former one like Victor Callahan of Independence. Maybe he would pick a Democratic businessman. I mean, you can name thousands of them, I guess, hypothetically. Or maybe he would go outside the box and pick a Republican that he really likes, like Charlie Shields or something, just to make all the conservatives baddie or something. I mean, all of that's hypothetical. But under that, it would give more leverage to the governor on, you know, him being able to appoint, although it would kind of change who he could particularly yeah because because frankly the gubernatorial appointments of the vacant statewide offices has been used traditionally like you mentioned margaret kelly she was the first woman to serve in statewide office because kit bond appointed her yeah i mean harriet woods ended was actually the first woman elected to statewide office in missouri but margaret kelly has the uh, asterisk of being the first because she was appointed so they often have used that uh to, I mean, it's been used a lot the last 20 or 30 years when, when, the, when it's rarely happened to promote women and, who had not served in public office before. In fact, most of the statewide appointments going back to the 80s mm-hmm. of the rare vacancy in statewide office has gone to a woman. Yeah. So I think uh, that's something that, again, both sides have used it because it's been go- Republican as well as Democratic governors who've had to fill these rare statewide vacancies. I will say just as kind of a an, an end note on this, because I know there's a couple other Mo 8 things we want to talk about. If someone like, for example, Jolie Justice got this but couldn't run for the special election, that doesn't mean she couldn't use the fact that she was lieutenant governor to run for something else. Like there's been talk of her running for Congress after Emanuel Cleaver leaves or running for the Kansas City City Council. That would position that person well to run for something else other than that office. So it's not like there's no benefit for that to happen. But, I mean, it does kind of limit who the governor can pick in that instance. But it does allow him to appoint a Democrat and kind of 
sorts out a lot of the confusion. Whether it passes or not, or whether it passes in the current form remains to be seen. Though. Right, or if there's a veto override or all that. But it, but it's 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 good fodder for all of us. Yes. Yeah. And it, a lot of it's going to depend. I mean, we don't know how Peter Kinder, Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder, will end up doing in the whole 8th District crowd. There's a uh, forum tonight that Joe will yes, be at. Yeah, there's a forum in Cape Girardeau that I'm planning on being at. <laughs> and this is the second of two forums. I don't know if uh, squirrels being hunted for breakfast will come up, but uh, this will be the last scheduled showcase of the various contenders before um, Congresswoman Joanne Emerson is slated to leave office in about three weeks. There may be more scheduled later, but until she actually steps down, Nixon says he's not going to announce anything as far as an election uh, the Democrats in that district have been very mum about who they're looking mm-hmm. at, and or whereas the Republicans, it's been very much out there with over a dozen uh, various contenders, including Kinder. Now, one side element that um, I just found out about and hope to have up later today is that, as as we've all mentioned, there's about 80, almost 90 Republican committee people in the 8th District who will, who will vote. Now, but what's interesting is the breakdown. Under the law, any county that has even a little bit in the 8th, their whole party entourage gets to vote. Hmm. So the result is that actually uh, what I've been told, according to the state Republican Party who gave me a breakdown, uh, Jefferson County, for example, has one of the largest contingents that will actually vote even though only part of Jefferson County is in the 8th. Jefferson County will have a bigger impact on that uh, nomination selection than some counties, including Cape Girardeau. And, and Jeffco, although we've talked about it on the show, has been trending more Republican. It's still a traditional Democratic stronghold, so it could be possible if the Republican committee men have very different lines of thinking than somebody, say, from Ripley County or Cape Girardeau County, which is an extremely Republican county. And and there's a lot of other smaller counties, but the bottom line is that, that a number of people who will be voting to pick the nominee do not live in the district themselves, mm-hmm. just that part of their county is in the district. And this is because of redistricting and how the lines ended up being drawn. And in many cases, county, uh, it wasn't like they tried to keep whole counties within the district. So there's this odd little anomaly. So what Jason says is true. Um, Jefferson County could have a bigger impact on the 8th district than some people think. Well, I'm looking forward to reading Joe's story tomorrow. The last one, from from what I read on Twitter, it seemed to be a hoot. <laughs> so we'll look for that tomorrow. You can find it on beyondnovember.org or stlbeacon.org. You can find my work on stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. Joe, will you be live tweeting tonight? I don't know. It kind of depends. I mean, I may do a little bit, but frankly, I try to focus on yeah. actually covering I'm stuff. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people live tweeting yes. because I, that's become that the, Mo8 hashtag. That's become kind of the the new thing to do. Well, where where can we follow you to? Well, you can follow me, you know, on the streets. <laughs> but but if you want to follow me on Twitter, it is Jay Rosenbaum. And, my, and I'm Jay Manis. That's M-A-N-N-I-E-S. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. So long. So long.